0: A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Alison Kosick. Great to have you with us for a special edition of the program today as we take an in-depth look at Ukraine six months on. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky saying today that his nation is a country reborn, marking not only a half year of conflict with Russia, but also 31 years since declaring independence. Ukraine bravely withstanding the Russian military onslaught, but its future depends on continued robust aid from the West. Joining us on the show to discuss Ukraine's future and its ongoing struggle for survival, Yuri Vitrenko, the former minister of energy and the CEO of state-owned energy giant Naftogaz, whose job it is to maintain crucial oil and gas supplies during wartime. Plus, Andy Hunter, president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Ukraine, on the resilience of local businesses who refuse to back down in the face of the Russian threat. Also, the resilience of the human spirit. We'll check in once again with Daria Kristinko a resident of Kiev, forced to flee her country and begin a new life as a teacher in Poland. Ukraine's humanitarian crisis continuing to transform Europe. All that and much more. But first, a look at global markets. U.S. stocks on track for a flat open following the S&P's third straight day of losses. Europe also little changed after a weak Asian handover, and we continue to see investor cautiousness ahead of important economic data later this week, as well as Fed Chair Jerome Powell's policy speech on Friday. Also today, oil on the upswing, with Brent once again trading above $100 a barrel, plus another day of weakness in the euro, which remains below parity with the U.S. dollar. We'll continue to monitor the markets throughout the show, but first, an urgent warning from Ukraine's President Zelensky about the threat of intensified Russian attacks as Ukraine marks 31 years of independence. It comes six months into the unprovoked Russian invasion. CNN senior international correspondent David McKenzie joins us live from Kyiv. Great to see you, David, especially today of all days. How concerned do you think are people in Kyiv about the possibility of an escalation in violence because of the Independence Day holiday?
1: Well, uh, Alison, part of the answer to your question is what you see behind me. There are throngs of people here in this extraordinary line of burnt out and abandoned tanks and APCs from the Russians that were uh, put here on the street as a kind of uh, commemoration, a a, uh, Russian line of defeat, as it were. This uh, fight has been going on for six months today. This is also an important anniversary, the independence from the Soviet Union, and people have been asked to not gather, to stay inside, to stay safe because of that threat, but At least behind me, you can see many are ignoring that to celebrate this day because it's been a long fight this six months. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky vowing Ukraine will prevail against Russia. Every new day is a new reason
2: not to give up. Because, having gone through so much, we have no right not to reach the end. What is the end of the war for us?
3: We
1: used to say peace, now we say victory. Zelensky's continued resolve comes as the country's defense intelligence says there are threats of Russian missile strikes coinciding with Ukraine's Independence Day. These come as the country marks six months since the Russian invasion began, when bombs were first heard in the Ukrainian capital in the middle of the night. There are big explosions taking place in kiev right now the following day russian soldiers were seen near the city firing ukrainians vowed to fight and defend their ground on snake island ukrainian troops response to incoming russian soldiers was seen as a patriotic moment for the country and has become a symbol of hope for ukrainian forces In the early weeks of the war, Russian troops were concentrated on taking Kyiv, occupying and bombing neighboring communities to get close to the capital. Millions of Ukrainians were forced to flee, walking through rubble and fallen bridges to safety. The carnage left behind has been devastating. In Erpin, northwest of Kyiv, bodies filled the streets, homes and buildings left in rubble. And in Butcher, evidence of war crimes quickly emerged as mass graves were dug to bury the dead. Russian soldiers retreated from Kyiv in defeat and refocused their efforts in the south and east. Russian forces were determined to occupy major seaports putting towns such as Mariupol in the crosshairs. This maternity hospital in Mariupol was bombed in March. Women were evacuated on stretches to safety. This woman, a day before going into labour, walked down flights of stairs in the destroyed hospital to get to safety. And this theatre, serving as a shelter for children, was bombed, despite a warning seen from above in large Russian letters that children were in the building. The fighting in Mariupol would continue for months coming to a head at the Azovstal steel plant. The soldiers and the remaining civilians were seeking shelter. The situation was dire.
4: It's a very difficult situation. Uh, We have very little water, uh, very little food left. The situation is critical. It's beyond a humanitarian
3: catastrophe.
1: In May, civilians were finally evacuated from the plant, but many Ukrainian troops fighting to protect the plant were taken prisoner. In recent months, fighting has been concentrated in the eastern region of the country, the site of an eight-year battle between Ukraine and Russian-backed separatists. CNN visited the region and met many suffering through the shelling, including 86-year-old Lydia, who was stranded and unable to evacuate.
5: She tells us she recites prayers to get through the night. I never imagined that my end would be like this.
1: And now the most pressing situation lies at the nuclear plant in Zaporizhia, where renewed shelling has occurred in recent weeks. The largest nuclear plant in Europe has posed a threat of nuclear calamity for months. Russia took control of the plant in March. A new video shows they are using the plant to store Russian military vehicles. As Ukraine passes this grim milestone, the concern is with winter approaching, that the international community's support for Ukraine will be tested, with rising food prices and rising energy costs to heat homes. Are you not afraid that the international community, your partners, may begin to tire of this war? I call it fatigue syndrome. Yeah. And uh, for me, it's a, one of the main
6: threats. And we need to, to work on with this uh, threat because we, we need to speak like with you, to communicate, to ask uh, people, don't uh, be on this fatigue mood because this is very, very dangerous for us.
1: Well, that is the worry here from officials, is that fatigue will set in, and perhaps the United Front, which is uh, helping Ukraine uh, to eventually possibly defeat Russia, or at least hold them back, might waver. For now, that seems, at least, Alison, that is not the case.
0: Well, the aid keeps coming. President Biden announced today that a $3 billion aid package, its biggest yet, is going to Ukraine. What's the reaction you're hearing?
1: Well, that certainly is very welcomed here because I did ask President Zelensky yesterday about the possibility of uh, the aid drying up as this war grinds on. That nearly three billion in grants uh, for military equipment, ammunition and training uh, is coming from the U.S., announced uh, by an official to us yesterday and officially a short time ago by President Biden. That will be a huge help, but this conflict, this front line in large parts of the front line, hasn't moved for many, many weeks. It's in a, a period of very dangerous uh, static fighting and lobbying of high artillery. And if you look at these, uh, this hardware beh- behind me as part of the, the, the awful battle of Kyiv, you can't imagine what it's like behind the front lines in areas that the Russians have taken over, ongoing uh, allegations of human rights abuses and even war crimes as this uh, conflict dry, uh, goes on and on and on. Alison?
0: Certainly a symbolic show of strength behind you. David McKenzie from Kiev, thanks so much. The economic impact of this war is being felt around the world. I want to bring in Claire Sebastian. She joins us live now. Claire, what are you hearing? Well, Alison, you only really have to
4: look at the news today to get a sense of what we're seeing here. The U.K. just announced that it has ended all fuel imports from Russia as of June. Oil, gas, uh, coal, all of that. Now, compared to continental Europe, that was not a particularly heavy lift for the U.K., but it is ahead of schedule uh, and it is all fuel type. So this is a significant moment. It shows how supply chains are being redrawn, reshaped around this war as of mid-August. Don't forget, Europe has also stopped importing all. Russian coal. The other thing that we're seeing today indicative of the impact of this war on economies is that the German cabinet just approved energy saving measures that will cut gas usage by between two and two and a half percent, a fraction, though, of what is needed to avoid energy shortages this winter. So it's changing the way we live as well. But the overarching impact of it, Alison, something that all of us are feeling is inflation. Take a look.
1: The Russian shock is now the largest contributor to UK inflation by some way.
2: Russia's unjustified aggression towards Ukraine is an ongoing
3: drag on growth. We've never seen anything like Putin's tax on both food
4: and gas. As the first Russian bombs fell in the early hours of February 24th, the economic front in this war was also emerging.
7: We are disconnecting key Russian banks from SWIFT.
4: A sanctions onslaught aimed at severing Russia's links with global finance. We decided then to have a ban now on de facto 90% of Russian oil. And eventually at hampering its ability to sell its fossil fuels, by far its biggest source of revenue. Six months in, Russia has fought back, cutting off the gas to parts of Europe, causing it to ration energy to avoid winter shortages and bringing soaring inflation that threatens the post-COVID recovery. It's not like Russia invaded Ukraine at a time of global economic stability. Inflation had already started rising sharply in the developed world as COVID-19 abated and demand outpaced supply in many areas. A year ago, as you can see, the U.S. was already seeing inflation way above its 2% target. By February, the month the war started, the U.K., and the euro area, were also seeing that. And now we're seeing multi-decade highs across the board and already double digits here in the UK. Central banks, mm-hmm. blindsided mm-hmm. by this surge, have raised mm-hmm. interest rates mm-hmm. aggressively.
1: If we don't bring inflation back to target, it's going to get worse. And it will get worse precisely, I'm afraid, for those who are least well off in society.
4: And that's amid signs some economies are already slowing. US and UK GDP fell in the second quarter, German growth flatlined.
2: The challenge I don't think is to bring down inflation. The challenge is to bring down inflation without blinking too much when the economy goes into an unavoidable recession in response to not a monetary, but
4: a real shock. So get used to the idea that you're going to have to continue to raise rates through a recession. Yes. A more dangerous consequence for the world's most vulnerable has been the disruption to the food supply chain. Russia and Ukraine play a critical role in supplying wheat, sunflower oil and fertilizer to global markets. Before the war, many countries, including some of the poorest countries in Africa and the Middle East, completely reliant on their exports.
7: More than 650,000 metric tons of grain and other food are already on their way to markets around the world.
4: After a five-month blockade of Ukraine's seaports, a UN-brokered grain deal providing some hope. Longer-term, experts say this war may bring a shift in the economic order, where supply chains are built not just to minimize cost, but also political risk. You know, I think that's the point, Alison, is that in terms of economics uh, on the international arena, there is a before and after this war. It's not like if the fighting stops, suddenly Europe is going to start on a large scale buying Russian gas Uh, and oil again. So that is the key point of this. Economies are having to be redrawn and reshaped to adapt to this new reality.
0: Claire, you mentioned how Russia has hit back during this war, but I'm wondering how Russia's economy is doing. I mean, we've seen international sanctions to big international companies leaving Russia. Is any of that having an impact on Russia's economy? It's having an impact, Alison, but it's
4: not in the way that many at the beginning of the war had expected. What we're not seeing is a collapse in the Russian economy. In terms of the financial system, in the early weeks of the war, the central bank was able to stabilize things. The ruble uh, is now not only uh, stronger than it was before the war started, but but it's basically at its strongest point in more than four years. Obviously, that's somewhat artificial. No one's actually buying the ruble, but interest rates, which which the central bank hiked during the early weeks of the war, have now come back down again. Again, uh, inflation is coming back down. The growth expectations for the year, they now expect not an 8 to 10% contraction in the Russian economy as they did in April, but a 4 to 6% contraction. Now, that said, on the energy front, yes, Russia has been earning more than previously because of higher prices. But there are big questions around what is going to happen in December when the EU embargo on 90% of Russian oil kicks in. Will they be able to fill the gap by exporting to Asia? Will the discounts that they've been offering be enough, because if not, we could see that prized oil revenue that Russia relies on so much start to come down. And that will really impact the economy.
0: And we will be watching that as well. Claire Sebastian, thanks so much. These are the stories making headlines around the world. The U.S. says it has carried out airstrikes on facilities in Syria used by Iranian-backed military groups. This video here from a journalist in eastern Syria appears to show the site where Tuesday's attacks happened. A prominent activist group reports that at least 10 people were killed. The U.S. says it acted in response to recent attacks against American forces. Iran has condemned the U.S. strikes and denies that it has any links to the groups targeted. Pakistan is asking for international aid as monsoon rains threaten a humanitarian disaster in the country. Since mid-June, at least 830 people have been killed by heavy rains and floods. Thousands have been been left homeless and bridges, livestock and crops damaged. The number of serious fires in Brazil's Amazon region rose to a five-year high on Monday. A monitoring agency recorded more than 3,300 fire hotspots. Researchers say the spike may be related to deforestation, although President Jair Bolsonaro suggested either natural causes or indigenous communities were to blame. Coming up, deepening energy crisis. The CEO of Ukraine's largest oil and gas company joins us to discuss challenges ahead of winter plus building a new life, the journey of a Ukrainian refugee and her story of hope. Next. Welcome back. Natural gas prices keep rising in Europe as the war in Ukraine continues. Gas supplies from Russia to Europe are down, about 75 percent this year. The EU accuses Russia of weaponizing energy, but Moscow says sanctions are to blame. European countries, including Ukraine, now are scrambling to stock up. The Ukrainian oil and gas company Naftogas is seeking billions of dollars to buy gas before winter comes. Joining us now, the CEO of Naftogas, Yuri Vitrenko. Thanks so much for being here. Hello. So we are about, or Ukraine is about two months away from heating season. Talk with us about where the supply of natural gas stands for winter for Ukraine. Um, I mean, how many more volumes of fuel do you need in storage to feel like customers will be in good shape?
6: Currently, we're edging about one billion cubic meters per month. Uh, but we believe that we need at least uh, three billion cubic meters uh, to be imported Um uh, Uh, preferably before the heating season, so that we go through this uh, heating season, which is supposed to be the most difficult heating season in our history, uh, uh, without any major uh, interruptions. Of course, there are some other military risks, uh, like Russians are targeting our infrastructure, but uh, at the same time, just to have enough gas, that's what we're planning to do.
0: Do you think you will get to that threshold of 3 billion meters?
6: Um, as you uh, rightly mentioned, uh, our biggest problem is uh, to get necessary financing. Uh, with current record-high prices, uh, these three billion cubic meters, it's uh, uh, from six to nine uh, billion dollars, uh, and that's a lot, uh, given the uh, financial difficulties not of Naftegaz but of Ukraine uh, uh, during the war.
0: Yeah, you don't need me to tell you about how high prices are um, and, and it's hard to fulfill these orders. Uh, what things are you doing to handle the higher cost?
6: First of all, we're producing as much as we can. Um, even now, for example, under some shelling in some war zones, uh, our people uh, produce uh, natural gas so that we can add to our storages. Um, We're optimizing our infrastructure to an extent possible so that uh, we utilize it to a full extent uh, this uh, uh, winter. We're also importing right now some small volumes uh, of natural gas from Europe, but it's not enough. And our major limitation is financing.
0: Of course, exacerbating the energy costs is the shutdown that's coming at the end of the month of the Nord Stream pipeline for three days, talking about the end of August. What are your biggest concerns with Gazprom shutting down the pipeline? Do, do you really believe this is for maintenance?
6: Um, I don't believe that it's for maintenance. Uh, they're putting some pressure on uh, on Europe uh, to uh, not just to end sanctions, but to make uh, uh, Europe and the whole civilized world to accept uh, uh, their rules of the game. Their request to change basically uh, a world order, and I'm not exaggerating. That's but Putin is public into your eyes um, uh, about that. So that's why uh, they use uh, gas as as a weapon. They use energy as a weapon, again, to put more pressure on people, to put more pressure on uh, Western governments.
0: And there is a broad package of sanctions in place against Russia for its invasion of Ukra- Ukraine, uh, though because of Europe's dependence on Russian oil, the EU isn't expected to ban most crude purchases until December, you're calling for tougher sanctions and harsher punishment for Russia from the rest of the world. Talk us through what exactly you're looking for.
6: It's not by the way just about uh, oil, um, but also about natural gas. Uh, basically, energy exports of Russia, they enjoy exemptions from the current sanctions. Uh, At the same time, it's uh, the most important revenue stream uh, for the uh, rogue regime of uh, Putin. So that's how he finances this war against Ukraine. They're getting about $1 billion uh, per per day uh, from their energy exports. And uh, with prices even going up, they're going to uh, make even more. That's why it needs to be stopped. So, uh, the whole world, not just Ukraine, needs to stop this war as soon as possible. And in order to stop this war as soon as possible, we need to make some risky moves. Uh, For example, when it it comes to energy sanctions against Russia. Mm -hmm. But also, the sanctions can be done in a smart way. For example, through a so-called price cap. We advocate for some adjustment, we would even call it a transfer cap, uh, meaning that uh, importers of Russian gas and oil can still buy Russian gas and oil, but uh, they can transfer um, money to Russia only up to a certain uh, threshold uh, per thousand cubic meters of a megawatt hour per barrel of oil. Um, In such a way, uh, the world makes sure that uh, Putin gets less money. Uh, also, it incentivize, uh Putin to stop this war because he will be able to get the rest from the food price and this mm-hmm. transfer cap uh, uh, when he withdraws from Ukraine, when he stops the war and pay reparations. So we believe it's a smart move, uh, That that is a risky move, but at the same time uh, we need uh, some real actions, some tough actions to stop uh, Putin's war. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and, I, and I want to ask you, because you mentioned the trouble with financing, and I know that your company it has fallen into default and your 2022 bondholders have rejected a proposal to suspend Naftogaz's debt payments for two years. What does this mean for your ability to operate and what are Naftogaz's next steps?
6: it's a tough situation for us because um, uh, for example last year uh, we made everything possible and impossible uh, to be back in black we were profitable after a year of uh, losses uh, we gained some financial strength right before the war and we were confident about our future and then with the war um, the government uh, had to start uh, a nationwide program of debt restructuring and because we're a state-owned enterprise, uh, uh, the government uh, insisted that we also ha- uh, have to restructure uh, our uh, debts. That's why we had to do it. Of course, uh, it limits uh, our um, capacity and our ability now to access uh, global capital markets and it's very unfortunate because that's exactly when we need it. Um, we're not naive, for example, to say that we can now uh, get some like loans uh, from some private uh, uh, lenders because of the war. Uh, but we have, for example, uh, a loan signed with EBRD, with some international financial institutions um, that were ready to provide financing to the gas. Uh, so that's why I hope that uh, uh, with a successful um, restructuring of the sovereign, uh that uh, we saw a couple of uh, days ago um now we uh, we will again sit down with the government but also with the bondholders and i hope we will find a solution um out of this problem because ukraine needs uh, more energy ukraine needs nafta gas um, uh, to provide security of supply to ukrainians uh, ukraine needs nafta gas also for the upcoming uh recovery assets uh, for the energy Mm -hmm. transition. That's something that we're doing even now despite the war. That's why we need to be uh, in good financial shape.
0: Right. All right. Yuri Vitrenko, CEO of Naftogaz. thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. After the break, six months into Russia's war in Ukraine and a determination among businesses to keep going. The results of a survey that may surprise you. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stocks are up and running this Wednesday, a mostly flat open with the Dow and the S&P 500 hovering near two-week lows. Investors remain in a wait-and-see mode ahead of Friday's big speech from Jerome Powell. Investors worry that the Fed chair will take a hard line on inflation and interest rates amid conflicting signs on the health of the U.S. economy and the all-important consumer. Nordstrom shares, though, are falling sharply in early trading after cutting its full-year forecast due to what it calls softening consumer demand. This comes after a similar warning this week from competitor Macy's. Also today, shares of Bed Bath & Beyond are beyond volatile once again. The stock rallying on reports that the troubled retailer has secured a fresh loan lifeline. Shares plunged last week after investor Ryan Cohen sold an almost 10 percent stake in the firm. And shares of Peloton rallying as well on news that it struck a deal to sell its stationary bikes, where else but on Amazon. Six months on from the Russian invasion, the, the American Chamber of Commerce in Ukraine is revealing the resilience of its members. They include Ukrainian divisions of major American brands, including 3M, Abbott, AB InBev, Visa, and Coca-Cola. It found 72 percent of member companies remain fully operational. 96 percent plan to continue operations in Ukraine next year, and 83 percent are paying full salaries. And just over a fifth say their company's assets have been damaged. That could be factories, offices, or storage facilities. I want to bring in Andy Hunter. He is the chamber president. Thanks for coming on the show today.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Let's kind of take a temperature check. We've you know, we are three we are six months in 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 this war in Ukraine. How are member businesses doing? What are the biggest challenges you see for them and what's the outlook for businesses there?
2: Well, Alison, I think what the, the survey clearly shows is the amazing resilience. I mean, we see the resilience that Ukraine and Ukrainians are showing on the battlefields. And this survey shows the resilience that's being shown on the business fields. Um, I think, you know, 72 percent of the members are, are fully operational. And there is uh, hope and uh, belief in the future. 96% of the members are ready to continue working throughout 2023. Uh, We see very different sectors. We've seen the agriculture sector picking up. We've seen 33 vessels leave the ports uh, in and around Odessa over the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, We see things like technology. The internet works better in wartime Kiev than in many other European capitals. Uh, the banking sector continues to, to work. I mean, we see uh, that even the banks have given up half of their armoured vehicles to the army, but they still manage to deliver cash to the cash point machines in small towns across the very bigger country. Um, the mobile and networks are up. Um, so we're seeing a real resilience and business coming together and business supporting, paying salaries, supporting uh, the economy. Uh, and there is a clear message. And this is a campaign that will be further developed. You know, we are open for business. Ukraine is open for business. And that is a message You know, we are clearly trying to get across uh, to companies uh, that may not be in Ukraine yet, but uh, should be there as soon as the war uh, is over, as Ukraine is, is showed, that gets the victory, and it's really, you know, getting ready for to plan uh, budget and prepare for coming into Ukraine.
0: Yeah. And, and the resilience of these businesses is really incredible that you speak of. But there are challenges, aren't there? What What are the challenges you're hearing from businesses? Well,
2: uh, the challenges are, are clear. I mean, the number one is the safety and uh, security of uh, employees. I think that is the real uh, number one uh, challenge because, you know, we still... Uh, during the course of today, there have been three times in Kiev, the air raid sirens keep going off. Uh, so I think, you know, we have seen the damage to the business. I think the logistics, the transport costs uh, are a big challenge. Uh, there's a decline in um, imports and exports operations and uh, in partners' businesses. Many uh, companies have lost uh, clients. Uh, but still they are, they are resilient. So the message we're trying to get across is do business with Ukrainians because it's now you know so important to keep the economy six months into this brutal war that Russia has launched against uh, Ukraine. It's really to keep the economy uh, mm-hmm. moving uh, because I think this is so important and it's really getting ready for the recovery. This will be a massive recovery uh, that uh, the businesses will be a big part of in terms of building a new Ukraine, uh, build back better.
0: Right. And you, and you are looking ahead. You're looking to when the war does end. But at this moment, six months in, it's hard to see an end for it. How difficult is it for you? And I know you're going to Washington, D.C. next week. How difficult is it to get investment for massive reconstruction that would come after? How difficult is it to get uh, people, you know, companies and and Offers to just to hand over money as this war just drags on with so much uncertainty about how it's going to end?
2: Well, Alison, I think at the very beginning of the war six months ago, literally this was exactly six months ago on the 24th of February when the war started, Um, But the corporations, the companies came together very quickly and they provided humanitarian aid. Over a billion dollars of humanitarian aid from the large corporations has come across already. So that's been a a great uh, support to uh, Ukrainians. Um, But obviously now I think um, there are many companies that are watching. We have seen over a thousand companies that have closed down their operations in Russia. You know, there is no future for transparent business in Russia. So what we're saying to these companies that are closing, that have closed their operations in Russia is now is the time to start looking at Ukraine, to start preparing, to start planning and to start budgeting. Um, Obviously, you know, the war continues um, and I think it's really companies that will be looking in to come in to take part in a massive uh, rebuilding. This will be probably the biggest rebuilding of a country. Uh, definitely this century, um, but so much more. And then being a part of this, being part of something um, quite strategic and quite phenomenal, building a new country. And I think the role of the private sector here is is vital. And these are the companies that won't invest in Russia. I mean, there is no future for them in, in Russia. So I think it's really now for them to come to Ukraine uh, to start planning and, and to start preparing
0: Andy, I know I know that six months ago you left Ukraine. What was that like to leave? And have you been back? And if you have, what changes have you seen in Ukraine?
2: Well, Alison, we woke up on the twenty fourth of February in Kiev when the missiles uh, started uh, flying over into Kiev and all over Ukraine. Um, it was the saddest moment of my life, um, hearing the air raid sirens and uh, moving, moving west. Um, I think, you know, we we did have contingency plans in place. They were clear, you know, the members had a clear contingency plans in terms of uh, hibernation, relocation, evacuation. You know, we went to bed throughout February with uh, jerry cans full of fuel in the car. We had paper maps because we were told the internet was going to come down. It wouldn't work, the mobile network. So we had, uh, we were prepared. Yeah. I think it was an extremely sad uh, moment but um, I think what uh, some of the military experts were forecasting that UK would fall within three days, that didn't happen. And this resilience shown by Ukraine and uh, by, by the business community. And I think you know business likes uh, leaders. They like to see leadership, which Ukraine and Ukrainians have demonstrated. They like to see those who take on responsibility. And uh, you know, the message is that we are, um, I've been back in Ukraine uh, since, I'm planning to go back uh, shortly. And I think it is really, you know, coming together. Uh, we see that um, uh, over 60, uh, 68% of our members are back in Ukraine, that they're located or, or the, the general managers, the CEOs are back in Ukraine. And it's really now starting to prepare for the rebuilding, the reconstruction, the recovery. And um, I think this is something that um, you know has really brought the business community together. Mm-hmm. It shows that somehow resilient and how strong the business is and the courage that Ukrainians have shown uh, standing up to this horrible aggressor.
0: All right, Andy Hunter, president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Ukraine. Thanks so much. Thank you. Coming up after the break, soaring prices, a leadership contest and interest rates on the rise. Is the UK turning the clock back to the 1970s? A former Bank of England governor's take is next. The U.K.'s economic situation is becoming more precarious. Citibank is predicting inflation will climb to over 18 percent, a level not seen in Britain since 1976. Back then, just like today, shoppers saw soaring prices, and the ruling party was in the throes of a leadership change. The U.K. economy shrank slightly in the second quarter. That's the first quarterly downturn in over a year, and inflation is racing Into the double digits. Howard Davies is the former deputy governor of the Bank of England and the author of The Chancellor's Steering the British Economy in Crisis Times. He told Richard Quest he sees similarities with the 70s. I was in the Treasury
7: in 1976 and can vividly remember the IMF delegation coming in to tell the government that they couldn't spend any more money. And now we're not quite at that point yet. Though if some of the more fanciful plans of the Conservative Party candidates for the prime ministership were were actually carried through, then we might find ourselves in that position. So we're not quite as bad as we were in 1976, but it's not a good situation. Uh, But of course, you can always say that there's no situation so bad that it can't be made a bit worse by an unwise political intervention. And that's what's worrying people here.
1: What's the one thing that worries you most economically? If you take the, the the situation in the world at the moment, UK, EU, US, you you pick. What's the one thing that's giving you most collywobbles?
7: I think it is um, China, because we've not been in this situation recently where you know it's been so dependent on what's going on uh, in China, and we don't understand that so well as we understand what goes on in the US. So when Everything depended on the U.S. economy. You know, a lot of people kind of understood that and they knew what, the, what to look for. In China, it's quite difficult. Even China watchers like me and I have worked with the Chinese regulators for a long period. I still find it quite difficult to follow just what is happening in the Chinese economy. And if the Chinese economy did fall out of bed in a clumsy way, then that would be uh, an additional problem which we wouldn't like.
0: Coming up after the break, the lessons of the war taught by a refugee. How one teacher who fled the fighting is helping Ukrainian children in Poland. That's next. We've just learned British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been in Kiev on this Independence Day. Here he is meeting Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. The two have been close allies since the war began six months ago. Six months of war has forced millions of Ukrainians to leave their homes, seeking safety beyond the country's borders. Hundreds of thousands of them have ended up in Germany. CNN's Linda Kincaid has some of their stories and what life for them looks like now.
5: NEARLY ONE MILLION UKRAINIANS HAVE FLED TO GERMANY SINCE THE START OF THE RUSSIAN INVASION, ACCORDING TO THE UNITED NATIONS. Berlin is a popular landing pad given its proximity to Poland, Ukraine's neighbour
1: We have about 25,000 people currently accommodated in our reception centers throughout Berlin, both Ukrainians and asylum seekers from all over the world, and we only have a few hundred places left. As you can see here, we will soon reach the maximum capacity of our reception centers.
5: With private accommodation growing scarce, many are looking to other options. More than 400 refugees now reside in a container village on a runway at Berlin's abandoned area. One of the residents is 28-year-old Roman, who lost his legs after an artillery attack in eastern Ukraine. He hopes to receive true prosthetic limbs, but it takes time says his
3: wife.
1: Medical care is good. The only problem is the waiting time, but that's normal. Here there are laws, not like at home. We are just used to other laws and procedures, faster medical appointments, faster treatment. Here it's better quality, but it takes
5: longer. A few containers down live Yasin and Albina, who's four months pregnant. After leaving Mariupol to seek safety in Berlin, they see a future here.
4: We are going to have a baby here. We are going to stay here.
3: We like Berlin so much. And we already found lot, lot, lots of friends here. Here's nice men, men, mentality and very good people. And no angriness.
5: Ukrainian journalist Svetlana lives at Tempelhof with her mother and daughter. She's most concerned about her 14-year-old child's mental health. I
4: see my daughter need
5: help, because she, she's
4: very nervous after the war. And for, for me and for my mom, it's easier, maybe because we are adults, but for a child it's very difficult.
5: Here at an abandoned airport runway, just a few of the millions of Ukrainian refugees whose lives have been completely upended over the past six months. Linda Kincaid,
0: CNN. Daria Khrushenko was forced to leave Ukraine at the start of the war. We were hiding in
3: basements in bomb-proof shelters. Hearing those sirens, it was very difficult and very scary. You need to focus on what is needed to save your life. I knew we need to go...
0: Daria took her son and two cats and left Kyiv for her parents' city. After her, month, after her mother began having health issues, she once again packed up her family, this time fleeing to Poland. There she was hired as a teacher by CARE, a humanitarian aid organization working to help Ukrainian refugees settle into a new reality. Daria says she's more than just a teacher to her students. And Daria joins us now. Thanks for joining us.
3: Hello,
0: Alison. Thank you. Hi. So talk with us about how you're doing today. Obviously, you, you fled since soon after the war began. You've settled in Warsaw, at least for the time being. How are your son and your mom doing? What have the past six months been like for you?
3: Well, it's been long and short at the same time. It feels like forever and one day. And we are okay because we are in safe place. And we started living normal life again. No sirens, no shelling. And I I am part of a care team now. And I am happy to help other refugees and children and their parents. My mom is getting better and better because it's calm and normal life it of course helps and my son is uh, part of summer in the city program he goes which is uh, summer day camps where children can participate in different sport activities and integrational activities
0: so i think it's it's all very well and back to normal back to normal wow what's it been like teaching uh... Ukrainian refugee children what are the things and the feelings that they talk to you about i know that you've said that you're more than just a teacher to your students
3: yes it's uh, it's very good feeling to help uh, your uh, Ukrainian children and uh, uh, to help them uh, again come to normal to help them in all the issues and uh, difficulties they they were facing and Uh, Now that it's uh, summertime and uh, again those children they were able to continue and not to stay at home but to continue going to uh, day camps and uh, to be integrated into Polish society as well which is very important in my opinion to make friends with Ukrainians and to make friends with uh, Polish kids and being part of care team it feels great because i can help not only children but their parents Mm -hmm. teachers so many programs that reflect reality and that help individuals not just numbers but i meet people and i talk to them i see their needs and as Mm -hmm. as a care we try to face those needs
0: I know your husband is still fighting in the war in Ukraine. How is he doing?
3: Well, my ex-husband. And he's doing very well. We are still in touch. (laughs) That's okay. My father is also in the army. Even though he is 63, he has joined the army and he is fighting. uh, fighting. And, of course, uh, it feels... This, uh, you know, worrying about my closest, is always, it's Mm -hmm. every day a big stress, of course.
0: Do do you plan on going back to Ukraine and rebuilding?
3: Well, I plan to stay here for a while because I see that what I do here is very important as well. Uh, Helping Ukrainian refugees who flee from war and whom I can talk and help, it gives... A lot of, um, you know, it strengthens me from the inside and uh, it gives me a feeling of being needed and of doing something very, very important. And of course, I want to return to Ukraine. And of course, I hope when the war ends, I'll be able to go back and to rebuild the country and also to help those who are in need.
0: Well, you are certainly one of the heroes in all of this, Daria Hrysenko. Thanks so much for all that you do. Thank you. As the war in Ukraine reaches the six-month mark, organizations are still on the ground helping. Find out how you can help them by visiting cnn.com impact. That's it for the show. I'm Alison Kosick. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Kosick. Thanks for joining us. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. I'll see you tomorrow.